Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate. And I'm Molly. And today, Kate is going to be telling me a story about women writing about desire. Oh, I'm sorry. I read it wrong. It's, (laughs) wow, it's like I've never read a book before. The title of the book is called Wanting, and the subtitle is Women Writing About Desire, which is great. Yeah. And I just held that up for you on my webcam and realized it was backwards for me and had a panic moment that it was backwards for you and then realized that's not how that works. And okay, well, here we are. And we did it. We have made it through the first seven seconds of this podcast unscathed. And so we have made it clear that we do not understand mirrors or webcams. And I refuse to learn. (laughs) You know, at this point, what do we need that knowledge for? Mm -hmm. It's just superfluous. Okay. I was on a meeting last week where someone, it was like a presentation with someone important and they asked her a question about some numbers she was presenting and she was using her phone to do math in real time. And I was just like, how are you staying this calm when someone has requested that you find a new percentage for something? Do math I on would command. <laughs> thrown my computer out the window. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I think we're disconnecting forever. Okay, bye. Yeah, I guess I'm quitting this job now. <laughs> like, whoa. It was amazing. Effective immediately. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, Molly, let's talk about desire. Yay! I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> you know, I have so many of them. <laughs> I knew you would love this topic. Uh, So let's start with a summary. Uh, Wanting, Women Writing About Desire is an anthology of essays by over 30 women taking up the theme of desire. To most people, when you say the word desire, it conjures sexual desire specifically. But what's interesting about this book is that it explores desire in all its different forms. Desiring things, substances, people, time, freedom, and a different world are just a few of the themes that the writers in this book take up. Oh, I love it. Sounds amazing. Editors Margot Kahn and Kelly McMasters prompted women to contemplate what desire is, what the rules of wanting are, and the intimacy in sharing one's innermost longings. One of the things I really appreciated about this book was the intimacy and vulnerability with which these writers wrote about their desires and the bravery it takes to articulate that out loud to a public audience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Today, I'd like to talk about just a few of the beautiful essays in this book and two themes that arose as I was reading through some of these uh, among the different perspectives of the writers. Okay, I love it. I can't wait. So uh, there are two different sections. Okay. I will let you choose your own adventure. Which one do you want to talk about first? Wanting and desire that lives in the body or... Uh, what I have titled, do I want this or do I want to want this or do I want something that this represents? Oh, let's go with that because, wow, do I feel related to that. (laughs) Okay, amazing. Um, So uh, what is – I'm going to start with a question then for you. What is your last experience of trying to decipher if you really want something uh, versus wanting to want it versus wanting – what that something implies okay okay let me think um 
Well, okay, I don't know if this is like a hundred percent, but I feel like it's it's a pretty good one. So when I think of desire, like the most potent one that I've had in my life in the last like let's say five years is like romantic connection. Mm-hmm. And I tried not to let it be like all consuming, but it was like oftentimes like all consuming. I was like, really, you, gotta, <laughs> you gotta sort your shit out. Um, okay. <laughs> but there was a point, I would say last spring where I'd like started to get over some like really bad heartbreak. I was like dating again and it was like not terrible. So I was really in that, like, it is what you make of it phase of my life where I was just trying to like experience it for what it was and not put like expectations or like it has to happen like this. Um, and I, with that, like kind of open space in my mind, I started to realize that when I got into a committed relationship, which I hoped would happen someday, I knew that there was actually a part of me that would really miss her single life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just like the freedom and my own space and like all of the things that come with singleness that are good. Mm -hmm. And I realized that it was like, a pretty significant part of me that just like really loved all the time I had and just being with my dog and like all the things that my life were was whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and I took a lot of comfort in the fact that like, no matter what happened, a part of me would be very happy. And so like right now in this moment, there was like half of me that was extremely happy because she had her single life with her mm-hmm. own things. And that, kind of tempered the like longing for remote romantic connection and it's not like the perfect answer to your question but that was just like me kind of realizing that I actually had conflicting desires and Mm -hmm. I don't I wouldn't say that it like pushed me so far to be like do I really want a romantic relationship because I was like yes 100% immediately give it to me (laughs) (laughs) um but it was inject it into my veins (laughs) (laughs) yeah truly like mainline that to me right now um but I I don't know, it just like changed my kind of understanding of my desire and the fact that it wasn't like my only desire. And that was an interesting revelation to me. Yeah. If I think of something that is like a little bit more specifically answering the question you asked me, I will let you know. (laughs) No, I like that. And actually, I had another question that uh, you answered with that prompt, I think. So we will get to that later. But okay. um, Yeah. Okay, cool. I like that answer. I think that we also, like all of us do this, where Mm -hmm. we may feel desire and then not know necessarily why we're feeling desire for something Mm -hmm. or know that we want something, we are so certain that we want it, and then we get it and we're like, well, this wasn't actually what I wanted. I wanted Mm -hmm. something else that was adjacent to this or, uh, you know, something like that, which I like. So the first essay in this book is by Larissa Pham. Uh, When I Imagine the Life I Want is what the name of the essay is called. Okay. And she writes about all the things she'd love to see in the world. And she writes about what that represents to her. And I just want to read a, a little bit about that. Um, because this is, I think, a very well-written articulation of when we want something because it means something else. So she writes, when I say I want a house with a Mirandi in the study, what I'm saying is I want to be able to afford a house with a Mirandi in the study, because if I can afford that, I can afford anything, a lost job, an accident, a medical emergency, money raises problems the way nothing else can. But it's not really what I want. 
in parentheses, the garden, the study, the desk. What I want more than the money, in parentheses, the chickens, the easel, the sink, what I want most of all is to have the freedom to imagine a large and ambitious life, in parentheses, the art, the food, the care. I want to work because I love work, because there is joy and purpose in making and growing things. I want to caretake because I love care, because there is fulfillment in sharing love with others. I don't want to have to balance what I want with what is attainable, because I want it all. I want it all. Mm. Oh my god. I love that. I love it too. Uh, And she then goes on to say that, let me revise my fantasy Um, When I'm wanting these things, it's actually in a different world. It's a world Mm -hmm. where I don't have to worry about a medical emergency in the way that we do now. I don't have to worry about racism and, you know, all of these things impacting my life. And I think that a lot of times we may want something in a very specific circumstance that may not be able to be realized. So like you may say like, oh, yeah, I I want to own a home. But then it's like, well, I want to own a home because it's security and I want to feel secure. And, you know, it's so complicated, I think, the way that we desire things and what they might mean to us ultimately. Yeah, I've been thinking about this with work a lot lately. Uh, We went through like a period of uncertainty for a little while with like, you know, the economic climate, as they say. And I, that got me to thinking about like what I would do if I didn't have that job anymore. Mm -hmm. And that kind of made me realize that like, maybe I want to do something else at some point in my life. But that, it, that kind of put me in a place of what she's describing, where I think it's more the idea of the thing. Like, I love the idea of not being beholden to a corporation or, Uh, employer Mm -hmm. of some kind but being my own and having like the freedom that comes with that and the idea of feeling like important and fulfilled and an expert on something that I'm passionate about and all of this but in reality I I really don't know like what that would be and I feel very envious of people who somehow like have that knowledge of themselves that like this is the thing that I'm so passionate about that I could talk about and teach about and like work in forever and it's like driven me to build my own thing and it's so frustrating when you want that but you can't conjure it out of nothing you know sure yeah yeah it's like well I don't know what I feel like that strongly about that I could like talk about it forever and like make money off of it um Mm -hmm. and so I found kind of found myself in that place of like well I would love to do that but I don't know what that is and I don't know how to necessarily like figure it out yeah yeah I think in terms of career paths a lot of people feel similarly because it feels like you can only choose one and Mm. once you've chosen that one you're beholden to stay there for a while and that's like I think kind of true if you want some stability in other aspects of your life like a steady paycheck and you don't want to have to be continuously job searching or continuously leveling up skills or going back to school or whatever that means but um yeah I have also found myself feeling that way and a lot of times it's more of like well I don't want to do one thing forever, but I might want to do or focus on one thing for like 10 years and then Mm -hmm. we'll see how we feel. (laughs) Yeah. Because like the concept of 
of committing to being like, no, I definitely want to do this thing for 50 years. It feels like not something I, maybe it's my personality. I don't know that it just feels like difficult for me to imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I totally agree. Like I've, I have not had a job where like the work I was doing, the tasks specifically were something that I was like, I can't wait to do this the rest of my life. In fact, yeah. I've been like, I can't wait to not do this the rest of my life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait um, to retire from yeah, this. Truly. truly. <laughs> but I, um, I really wish I could find something that felt that way to me. That was like, this is something that I will feel passionate and driven about for the rest of my life. And I think I started thinking about that in the context of what you just read, because part of me wonders if it is imaginary in, in that I, what I want is a life where I am independently wealthy and I don't have to worry about the, like always having a job. Yeah. 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 And I think, I don't know if that's true, but I suspect that that is what I am longing for (laughs) is just like the freedom to not have to do the same thing every day and plan my life around this thing that I must have in order to survive. Yeah, for sure. Which is just like such a fucking drag. (laughs) (laughs) Having a job is so stupid. (laughs) And yet I love it and I'm thankful for it and I would not trade it. And don't take it away from me. (laughs) Don't you dare. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, Um, for sure. This is kind of leads into the next essay that I feel like is under this theme, which is uh, an essay called An SUV Named Desire, (laughs) where (laughs) Jennifer DeLeon writes about wanting to buy her first car, a new SUV with a sunroof and a CD player. After she graduated from college and the experience of shopping for it with her parents who are Guatemalan immigrants. And she writes about how her parents had offered to rent her their Toyota Camry instead of buying a new car. And I want to read this section that she writes about directly after kind of about that offer. Okay. So she writes, I think of how their suggestion for me to rent their Toyota Camry was not a consolation prize, a B-side, a second choice, but instead a smart, practical, but still big offer in their eyes. Of course it was. No one had offered them such a deal. I was too immature to see it. I want to say sorry to them then and now. But yeah, in that moment, I was blinded by the silver. And it wasn't the car itself, but rather the illusion that I would ever fit in. Back then, I still thought I could gain a sense of belonging, as if reaching for it on a mug on a shelf. What I didn't yet grasp was the realization that this sense of belonging needed to come from within, and it would take years and many miles trekked on my own map for me to believe it. Hmm. And I think, especially in America, there's a lot of connotations that come with actual physical objects Mm -hmm. and how we use those to signal so many different kinds of things yes yes and even now as like a 31 year old i am still extremely susceptible to the capitalist belief that if i buy this thing i will feel the way that other people appear to feel who have this thing Mm-hmm. Or my life will suddenly feel important or valuable or something in a way that it didn't before I had this thing. Yeah. And it has yet to work. <laughs> Spoiler alert. It has not worked to date, but we're still working on it. Uh, yeah. And I think, too, there's it's like 
if I buy this, this will make me feel a certain way. That's like one side of it. And then the other side of it is if I buy this, this will make people, other people treat me a certain way. And so there's kind of both of those angles, which I think is uh, definitely prevalent with basically everything we buy. Well, and I think the thing that's tricky about that second piece of like, this will make people either treat me differently or see me differently or whatever, is that it's often true. And Mm -hmm. so it can be really hard to like talk yourself out of a decision that might not be the best for whatever reason, when you know that it would um, earn you some more legitimacy in the eyes of certain people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, blah, 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 like those people, their opinions don't matter anyway, yada, yada. But it's like, there's actual like social capital that can be gained from those types of things. And that can be important for survival or whatever. Um, So it's hard to actually argue with yourself in those situations. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And yeah, I think it's, it acts as sort of an incentive structure that if you're being positive, re- positively reinforced that yes, when you buy nicer clothes, people treat you nicer, then you're going to continue doing that because it yeah. worked. Yeah. And so it's like, well, yeah, it's pretty hard to back out of that or be like above it, so to say, when yeah. you know that it does give you the result you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so similarly, uh, in Rena Priest's essay, Desire in the City of Subdued Excitement, she writes about being a Native American woman who wants a pair of cowboy boots for Christmas. Mm. And they're like $500 cowboy boots. And I, I really liked this essay because it felt uh, pretty distinct in the collection of essays and just kind of the way that she wrote it because it was about one specific desire for these cowboy boots and like what that is representing so Mm -hmm. Uh, She writes, this is not an essay about struggle. This is an essay about desire. I harbor an aching and persistent desire to write about all of this baggage. And previously, she was kind of writing about what it means to be a Native American woman in America. Uh, today. Uh, I really wish I could write love poems and things that make people feel nice so they'd love me, but people are always asking me how my heritage influences my work, and I have 11 generations of paradise lost to contend with. It makes writing kind of suck a little bit. It's not a pleasant material to work with, and it's nothing anyone really wants to hear. Nobody likes to bear bad news, but bearing it alone is even worse. If you stop reading, you leave me here alone with the baggage of our shared history, just like the white people have been doing to natives for 500 years, abandoning their own story, turning away and disclaiming responsibility when asked to make things right. You're better than that. Stay. Listen. Mm. And I thought that was really powerful, not just because she is directly speaking to you, the reader, but also because... She's writing about the act of writing here, that no matter what she creates as a Native American woman, she feels like she has to be the one to conjure and to reference our shared history because white people aren't going to do it and they don't feel the same responsibility. Yeah. And it's and she's describing it's a burden because she knows that it's not like a pleasant subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm curious, like, as somebody who does write memoirs and, um, you know, re- real essays um, or essays of real content, the things that have happened, um, do you feel 
that there are there's anything that you have to bring along with your writing as baggage that you like kind of wish you could set down sometimes or do you feel like it's something that is so integral or necessary to writing that it wouldn't make sense to not include it Mm, such a good question I I kind of had that thought like while you were reading that section that it's it's almost one in the same. Like if I didn't have the baggage that I have, I would have nothing to write about, <laughs> you know, like maybe I would still be a writer and I would find things to say. And I guess like, I don't see it as baggage necessarily because I don't, I don't have that same experience of being a native person in a country that was like taken away from me. But I, I see it as like the, the kind of catalyst or driving force behind why I write is my desire to like say things that I never had the chance to say or work through those sort of complex emotions and my quote unquote baggage. Um, so yeah, I think it it's hard for me to imagine like what I would write about if not those types of things. Mm-hmm. I feel like that it would just lack a lot of weight. Like, I, when I was, uh, I don't know, 22, I was writing that memoir about Paris and the trip itself was like an extremely positive experience. But the reason it was so positive was because many of my experiences before that had been very negative and they, like I had felt very erased as a person. And so that experience in Paris wouldn't have been so life altering and worth writing about to me if I hadn't had all of those experiences where I felt like I wasn't worthy of like being who I was or whatever Mm -hmm. leading up to that so it's kind of like a balance of there's a lot of good that I write about and I'm sure that this author also writes a lot about good and joy and whatever but those things wouldn't be as potent or noticeable if it wasn't for the baggage Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that makes sense I also think too like um the contrast that you're talking about of like of needing there to be that baseline with which you can compare it to, uh, for it to be notable to you makes a lot of sense. You know, like I'm writing about this because it was the exception, not the rule. And because it was the exception and not the rule, I feel differently about it than I otherwise would have. Right. Well, and even if you think about nonfiction or I'm sorry, fiction, um, have you ever read a story that didn't involve some sort of conflict? Maybe, but it wasn't good. You know, like that's boring. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> there are no stakes. There's no like raison d'etre, you know, there's like nothing to it. And I think that it it feels essential. And and I understand like I I checked a memoir out of the library once and then didn't read it because it was about a woman whose family died in a tsunami. And I just couldn't bring myself to read about that. And um, so I, I feel like there's certainly some subject matter that is mostly much more dark and difficult to contend with than just like me, a white woman whose life has been generally good, but sometimes hard, you know, like that's sure, a lot sure. different. Like there's, there are like different, um, there's also different like uh, tolerances that people have for certain subject matters. Like I know some people who can read back to back to back to back memoirs about people being sexually abused and not 
have much of a negative reaction to that. But I am not able to do that. I think a lot of people fall into that category. Uh, And so it also, in in some ways, I think depends on the audience. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think, too, like what's powerful about what Priest is, is talking about here is like, yeah, someone else should be bearing this burden with me. A lot of someone else's, and they're simply not. Uh, and I, I wonder if you like feel that way about your experiences of being a woman or, you know, any, any other kind of um, shared identities that would like impact your writing, which I'm sure that they do because it's a part of you, right? Yeah, I feel that way with definitely being a woman, but m- more with the like ex-evangelicalism, which mm-hmm. is a lot of what I write about and the thing I'm working on now. And I think it's difficult, probably in similar ways to what this author experiences, where you want to be honest about what it was like and and not just about your own experiences, but about the system that it exists, regardless of another person's experience within it, maybe being positive, that overall it is actually negative. And you want to like make that argument without like d- um, discounting another person's experience that was good. So like, for her, maybe some Native people and definitely lots of white people see things in a much more positive light. And that's not, doesn't mean that she's wrong, that overall the system is fucked and rotten, but it's delicate to sometimes write about that without saying that, like, you're wrong about your experience. Sure. You know, and it's like, well, your experience isn't wrong, but you might have a misconception about the system that it happened within. And you might think that that system is overall good because your experiences were overall good, but it's actually not. And I'm going to tell you why, whether you agree with me or not. (laughs) Yeah, like your your positive anecdote does not equate to a positive system that means that everyone would have a positive. Right. And maybe you were protected within that system for a a reason that you're unaware of. Um, But it wasn't because the system was good. It was because you escaped it unscathed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Because you were lucky. That was a bit of a tangent. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So let's talk about how wanting lives in the body. I liked this essay that I'm going to read from by an author, a writer named uh, Joanna Rakoff. And her essay is called There, There is a Name for This which I really liked the title of as well. And she is talking about how she uh, has a great desire for a previous or a prior lover who she runs into years after they have broken up at a conference. Mm-hmm. And okay. I want to just read sort of the la- or one of the paragraphs in this essay because I – really just liked the way she wrote. I think that was a big part of why I liked this. So uh, she writes, For a moment, I stared at him, my hand shaking, heart hammering. Those sound like cliches, I know, but please understand that I'm merely reporting what transpired. Though icy waters had soaked through my boots, stiffening my feet with the cold, and the wind had numbed my cheeks, the rest of my body had grown hot uncomfortably horrendously hot under my arms my silk dress clung damp with sweat so much sweat that i feared wet circles had soaked through the soft wool of my coat for a moment the room spun in a sickening way and i braced myself on the arm of a nearby sofa so as not to fall down 
I had, I realized, been holding my breath for a murderous amount of time. As if possessed, I turned my face back toward the man 20 feet away, who was now laughing at something uh, something uttered by a woman to his left, his face glowing with delight. And as I shifted my eyes in his direction, the word that came for what was transpiring in my body, in my mind, came to me. Desire. Oh my god. That is so good. So what do you think about that? I was thinking about this, like, experience I had that was similar once. I was, like, in a coffee shop with a friend. This was, like, years ago in college. And um, someone that I had a crush on that I, like, wasn't supposed to. And I hadn't seen in a while. And I was, like, kind of unsure if I'd even, like, see them again because of, like, the circumstances of, like, how we met and everything. Mm -hmm. Happened to walk in. And I had actually just been telling my friend kind of about it and being like, you know, this is like, just feels like a bad situation. Like, I don't know why I'm having these feelings for this person, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I, he was like all the way down at the bottom of this, like, or bottom, at the end of this like long kind of building that we were in, this like coffee shop. And I saw him just kind of walk in from the patio and then out. And so it was only for a second, but I just like got this like tunnel vision and I <laughs> like, I stopped talking and I, I probably stopped breathing and I was like holding the table really tightly. And she was just like, she could tell that something crazy was happening in my body. And yeah, it was like, yeah. So it was very much like what that woman just described. <laughs> it was wild. Yeah. I I love it because I think um, part of it is like a, a shock of seeing mm-hmm. an ex- unexpected person, yeah. right? Like you did not expect to see this person in this situation. And now you have. Yeah. Uh, and also the just like where, where you see someone that you clearly have had some strong connection with Mm -hmm. and your body starts responding as if the last time you saw them and like I think I've uh had that experience where like maybe the last time you saw someone you were like in a fight or something and you start feeling like really like immediately angry or something or like Mm -hmm. immediately on edge like your fight or flight is like like all the way to the top um but I've also had this situation where um Years ago, one of my friends was having a really hard uh, time with, like, her job, and it was Mm -hmm. going poorly. She hated her boss. Her boss was, like, kind of bullying her, and, Mm -hmm. you know, it was very difficult. And we saw each other for the first time in probably, you know, eight months or a year or Mm -hmm. something like that. And the first thing she did was burst into tears. And I think, like, there's sometimes something about, like – knowing that you have found this like familiarity where Mm -hmm. your body just does whatever it has been waiting to do the whole time (laughs) and like maybe it's like burst into tears because you you feel safe with this person again and you haven't felt safe in a while or maybe it's like you know uh, feeling desire again when you like haven't felt desire in a while because you desired yeah. that person and you haven't seen that person and yeah um I, I I don't know I just really liked the way that she was writing about that yeah well I think uh we were talking about in our last episode about like desire showing or emotion showing up in our bodies and I feel like that is very much something that this is about like have you ever had that experience of doing like um, some yoga, like you're in pigeon pose, which is, I probably talked about this on the podcast before, but it's like you put your leg <laughs> in front of you kind of in this way and you bend and it stretches your hips. Yeah, yeah. And there's like a lot of research around the fact that we hold trauma in our hips, specifically as like women. 
And I will often have an experience when I'm doing that pose where I get emotional and cry while I'm doing it. Really? Yeah. And it's like, I'm not going into it thinking like, oh my God, I'm going to cry. Like I don't think about it. And then it sure. just like overwhelms It just happens. Me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I've I've had that kind of in a few other situations where like my body is involved and like whatever, like the physical activity has like connected enough with my body and some emotion that I wasn't aware I was having that I just like suddenly it's like welling up inside of me and it's like and suddenly it was just like right on the surface (laughs) yeah 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 I've had that experience more in like um like I've never uh necessarily had like uh sadness or anything come up when I was like doing yoga like that but I have had Mm -hmm. the experience of doing yoga or some other like unusual position that you're kind of Mm -hmm. like putting your body in and you feel vulnerable Mm -hmm. in where you Mm. like I have had the feeling of starting to feel um really anxious in that position because it's like oh I'm I'm like putting myself in a vulnerable pose Mm -hmm. and my body is like resisting that because Mm -hmm. it feels scary you know like that sort of thing and then feeling like oh no like you're you're still okay you know like it's okay to do pigeon pose you're not your body's not gonna like actually break here it just feels scary because of that um and yeah it is interesting how those things can sort of like bubble up in you you may not know where they're coming from or like Mm -hmm. how to get rid of them or how to process them when they do (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah or like why it's happening and I think that can be yeah like confusing for you but any also anyone who's like with you experiencing it being like what what's happening right now and you're like I don't know I literally don't know yeah yeah uh yeah I think um there's a a really good essay that uh we um well there are a couple of essays that I pulled on this same topic and I don't know that we'll talk about all of them because we probably won't have time but mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention a few of like um there's one written by Molly Macaulay Brown who writes about her experiences with desire and sex as a disabled person mm-hmm. and how she has cerebral palsy um mm-hmm. and she writes that her body was a country of error and pain it was a doctor's best attempt a thing to manage Mm. and make up for it was a place to leave if i was hunting goodness happiness or release um and how she had to like work through that to be able to say like no my body can also be a space for happiness and desire Mm. and Mm -hmm. feeling good right yeah um and there's a similar essay that i i will read from uh by tara conklin and the essay is called allergic and 10 years into her marriage she develops an allergy to her wedding ring and there's that's like part of the essay that she's telling the story for and the other part is that her marriage is sort of falling apart Mm. and um one of the things that she talks about is sexual dysphoria that she experienced with her husband at the time, which is not mm. something I'd ever heard of before. Um, but it's essentially when she is having sex with her husband and not actually feeling interested in doing that mm-hmm. and how that like impacted her desire. So mm-hmm. um, I'll read just this section here. 
So she writes, consent necessarily defines what constitutes a sexual crime, but if we're interested in well-being and happiness and equality and why women can't seem to find them at work or at home, then maybe we should start in our bedrooms and with our bodies. Maybe silence begins there. And resentment, self-sabotage, self-hatred, acting against our best interests, voting against them too. What does it take to spread your legs night after night for a man to whom you are no longer attracted, to consent to a sex life from which you derive no pleasure, no satisfaction? It can only erode your sense of self, your mental and emotional health. It can only act as a kind of violation. Yeah, I, I've had times when I've been having sex and been like, I don't want to be doing this anymore, and I haven't said it, and I know that it is like a really damaging thing to do to your body to just be like I'm just gonna let this keep happening because it feels awkward or like bad to tell this person I don't want to keep going but um Mm. I've like it's been a long time since that I've done that because I just think that that is not a way to treat yourself and if you want to stop you should say so immediately yeah yeah and then that person should reciprocate and also of stop immediately <laughs> of course um <laughs> that's a whole should, other problem yeah should go without saying but just want to yeah. say it anyway mm-hmm. uh and yeah i think what to me was partially interesting about this is kind of this whole post me too conversation happening around consent is a low bar of Mm. like, yes, someone is consenting to a physical act, but you should really be aiming for enthusiasm or, Mm -hmm. you know, like (laughs) the top ecstasy (laughs) or uh, some sort of like more enjoyment, more enthusiasm that they are interested, right? Um, Of like to, there's, I think a lot of conversations about like, is consent like not un- not pushing it enough to say like mm-hmm. no you you should get more than just consent you should have someone being really enthusiastic about whatever right. you're doing together yeah right because it's very easy to be in a situation where you're not afraid or unhappy you just aren't that excited and maybe you don't really want to have sex but you also don't not want to have sex and it's all just kind of like in between and so you can emotionally be like well this isn't like non-consent like i i'm fine with this but you're not really into it and i think that that's just like a confusing gray area that i have personally let myself kind of like go along with even though later i was like yeah i didn't really want to do that and i should have been more clear with myself not the other person Mm -hmm. it's like a personal thing that i should have admitted to myself yeah. So yeah, that yeah. I could then communicate it, you know? Yeah, um, for sure. But it, it's just like very, it's a hard thing to learn with yourself sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also true that like, as we have been talking about this whole ep- episode, like um, wanting is sometimes pretty complex and maybe mm-hmm. you're feeling like uh, you aren't sure if you want to or not, or you aren't mm-hmm. sure what you want to do or like where your line is for that night or whatever. And Um, so I think that is a contributing factor too, is like, you can only be as clear with yourself as you know about Mm -hmm. it, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you're, if you don't, if you're not able to really like know where your line is or what you really want to do, then it's difficult to articulate that to someone else. And it's also difficult Mm -hmm. to like stop yourself from doing uh, something that you kind of want to do, kind of don't want to do, right? Yeah, totally. It, yeah. And I think, like, that isn't to say that that's, like, the end of the world or something. Like, that's just how we learn, you know? And mm-hmm. 
then you know better next time, like what you actually want or what desire really feels like in your body versus like, like a lack of interest. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's all just like part of being an adult and having sexual experiences or like all kinds of different experiences with desire and wanting things. Mm -hmm. Um, But it takes practice to learn it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. I have one more essay that I want to talk about. And then I have a question for you. Love it. So the other essay is in Domenica Ruta's essay, Control Freak. She writes about Mm. her desire to feel the control she felt over her body when she had an abortion. Mm. And later her experiences with childbirth. And then even later than that, her experiences with breast cancer. So she's writing about kind of three different experiences that involve her body and how she um, felt about each of those, Mm -hmm. which I thought was a really fascinating essay. Mm -hmm. So she writes, if abortion taught me for the first time that I had control over my body, childbirth taught me how to let go of that control. And cancer was a lesson that neither of those things, control or surrender, are mutually exclusive. Mm. I can't imagine that feeling of like wanting someone or wanting something like a kid enough to be willing to (laughs) hand over your body in that way. It's so hard for me to grapple with. Uh, Of like childbirth in general. Yeah. And just like accepting that your body is going to change in significant ways that you have. I, I feel like no control over. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that is, yeah, I, I think I prefer to have more control than that allows mm-hmm. for. And I think eventually maybe some people come to a point where they're like willing to accept that and it's that feels scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, for a lot of people it is scary, but also um, it's just kind of what we talked about in our last episode, which was a little bit about like, sometimes the thing that hasn't happened yet seems worth going through something that you'll have to go through in order to get there. Right. Mm-hmm. Where like, you know, I think we do a lot of things <laughs> for the eventual reward that we are hoping mm-hmm. it will bring. Yeah. Um, and I think some people are like, more motivated to do that than others because of mm-hmm. what they feel like it will reap, you know? Right. Yeah. Like if you're someone who's always imagined having kids and wanted that, then the sacrifice is much less significant than maybe someone who is unsure or been on the fence about it, you know? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I find interesting about this passage and this essay is she's talking about three different experiences that involve her body and some of them Mm -hmm. are choices and some of them just happen to her Mm -hmm. and how each one of those things, whether she chose it or not, were things that she learned something from and that Mm -hmm. she was able to then adjust the way that she interacts with her body and with the world because of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that it is a lot different to have a experience where you lose control of your body in some ways because you chose that versus it is just being thrust upon you. Mm -hmm. Or even like, yeah, the first time that she got pregnant, obviously she chose the abortion. Right. And so, um, that 
that too of like having a medical procedure that you have chosen that you Mm -hmm. know will have some repercussions on your body right right but Um, like a profoundly positive effect for you right right so yeah i think it's uh very interesting that essay and just like that conversation about um Mm -hmm. our choices and our desires and how those things impact one another Mm -hmm. yeah very much so that is um, the last essay that I wanted to chat about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other question that I had, which I'm not going to ask you to answer because you already did, was how mm. often do you feel contradictions in what you want? And we kind of mm-hmm. talked about that already. So I feel like mm-hmm. we're like probably good. Unless yeah. you have something else that you wanted to touch on. Um, merely the fact that as famously, as you know, I am a Libra. <laughs> And you are too, but I feel like our Libraness kind of shows up in different ways. And mine oh, is very... it's almost because they're all the same. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't really tell you that much about a person. All right, go ahead. <laughs> um, I find myself struggling to make decisions a lot, like especially low stakes decisions, like what kind of ice cream I want. Mm. Um, and it's often because I really have a hard time articulating to myself like what I want. Mm-hmm. And or like I want more than one thing that can't be combined satisfactorily. So I, I would say that like conflicting desire and like struggling to decide what my desires are are just like such a common thing that I experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to decide what kind of ice cream you want. OK, yeah, ice cream is an important decision. It's important and also not. And therein lies the problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh life is so hard okay (laughs) i have a list of four pop culture pairings all books all fiction that were all written by women uh and each of them i think touches on desire in a different way and so i just want to run through and suggest those pop culture pairings uh the first one is you made a fool of death with your beauty by Akweke Amezi Mm. uh this book is beautiful it is realistic it is messy as fuck Mm. um and it was so good and I loved it it's a romance the second one is Our Wives Under the Sea by Julia Armfield who Mm. writes about a couple who one of which is a marine biologist um, disappears on one of her missions under the sea. And then when she okay. returns, something is amiss. Really liked oh the way that was written and the relationship there uh, okay. with the two main characters who are obviously married to each other. The next one is Hurricane Girl by Marcy Dermansky. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is bizarre. It is... Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of amusing and Mm -hmm. i thought it was really unique um it's about a a woman who buys a home and sees it uh collapsed during a hurricane um and then sort of how her life transpires afterwards it is creepy and interesting and uh funny i love that oh my god that sounds good and then there's one more, which is called Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder. <laughs> it is an incredible book. It is a satire about a mother mm-hmm. who okay. turns into a creature uh, after having and birthing her son. 
uh, and kind of what motherhood does to uh, a woman and how it impacts her body and life. So, oh my god, that sounds amazing. Anyways, so yeah, that's what I have for okay. desire things, and I guess that's it. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. And now we desire to end this podcast. <laughs> and now we want to get the F out of here. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much for telling me about that. And for all those recommendations, I um, am in the, the market for a new fiction book to be reading. So perfect timing. Oh, love it. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and you're... Your recommendation last summer that was about that uh, book. Oh, I forget what it what was called. It's the one about the guys who talk to each other in the airport. Oh, mouth by mouth. Yes. Oh my god, so good. Wasn't it so fun? I loved it. Yeah, I loved it too. Ah, amazing. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I forget what I recommend to people because I'm always just talking and I don't really listen to myself. So, (laughs) well, it was a winner for sure. So (laughs) trust her, everyone. (laughs) Uh, Wonderful. Well, enjoy those books. Uh, Enjoy this book if you end up reading it. And Mm -hmm. we will see you. Actually, we will not see you. We will talk to you next time. (laughs) Okay. Bye. (laughs) 